Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Well, hi, Scott, and welcome to episode six. Hey, Mark. Great to be with you again today. You know, last time we had the pleasure of recording in the uh, brewery, I was wondering if there might be any beer today. (laughs) Well, not yet, but no, not on the show today, but that was fun. And I do hope we can do it again soon. So it was great to be together. But before we begin, just like last time, I do have to provide a disclaimer that the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Okay, well, we got that behind us. Today, we do get a great opportunity to learn about one of the very key stakeholders in the entire drug reimbursement and payment system, and that, of course, is the pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, as they're frequently referred to. Our guest today is Mesvin Teganu. We're super happy to have him with us. He led PerformRx for many years. He's an early PBM that focused first on supporting Medicaid patients, but then grew into Medicare and now serves a full spectrum of private and public clients. Welcome to the podcast, Mesvin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Well, Mesvin, we're thrilled you're here. Obviously, the PBM is a big part of access and looking forward to learning more and hearing your perspectives. But Scott and I, we seem to start every episode where we give our guests a chance to tell us a little bit about your founding story, like how you got into the business and a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are today. Do you mind starting off with that? Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you. You know, the pharmacy benefit management space wasn't something that I thought I would be in when I finished college. When I, once I graduated from St. John's, and I got some headhunters calling me, and I was supposed to be a radiologist pharmacist, not a PBM expert, but the same headhunter who tried to get me hired into a hospital of radiology as a radiology pharmacist called me back and said, hey, there is some other opportunity. You have no idea how better that is. So that's really how I got into the PBM space. The first time it was Hip of New York. It's now Emblem Health in New York City. At the time, that was in early 90s, 94, 93, 94, it was one of the companies that had its own PBM, in-house PBM operations, very efficiently run in-house PBM operations. So that's where I started to learn the PBM industry, stayed there for several years, about six, seven years. Then from there on, moved on to create this company that Scott referred earlier, build a pharmacy benefit management company in Philadelphia, based out of Philly. And the company at that time, it wasn't supposed to be a PBM, it was supposed to be an in-house solution to health plan that was at that time really suffering from costs that they didn't know what it was. It was finally, we found out it was more a hemophilia related issue, a dual eligible related issue that nobody knew how much they would cost. It's, it, now we are talking 1999. So Medicaid was enrolling dual eligibles for the first time and nobody knew what they were bidding on. So the health plan was in big trouble. So when they reached out to me to solve that problem, 
my proposal to them was, hey, no PBM can solve this for you. You probably have to build a capability in-house and do it yourself. So that's how it all started. So we built an in-house capability first. Companies that lost uh, money three years in a row made money for the first time that year. And then that was reported in various local papers and professional trade magazines, end up servicing similar clients at that time. So it turned into a PBM. So by the time I left, it was a PBM that has reached over 12 states, over over 6 million people, managing over $3 billion in drug drug costs. So that's a short history of how I got into the business. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Mesfin, you've you've certainly been a long time and highly respected PBM executive, and I know you've seen a lot of change in the space regarding drug pricing and management of the access to it as well. Tell us a little bit about your early days of PerformerX and what the landscape was like in the late 1990s, early 2000s. The landscape at that time was very different, as you might guess. It was competitive. The PBM space was competitive. PBMs were either local or regional. So all decisions, all formulary determinations, utilization management review protocols were really plant-centered than PBM-centered. Plants had an ability to dictate how to get things done. And more importantly at that time, the factor, rebate was a factor, but it wasn't that much of a factor at all. We negotiated, but just because formularies were starting being taking place at that time, but it wasn't really, things weren't done just for the rebates. So utilization management strategies were in place, but not in the level that it, it is today. It was, you know, and, and then health plans, the, the commercial business was focused more on in hip of New York. We were focused more on uh, high blood pressure medications at that time. And now we are talking, the big deal was co- in a cholesterol drug came out and it was a big deal. It was expensive at that time, 200 bucks, <laughs> diabetic drugs. And then when you came to manage Medicaid, in addition to those cardiovascular diseases, they wrote depression and isocardics were the big deal at that time. Actually, they were cost drivers, they were expensive. It was six, $700. And then ADHD drug, and then hemophilia in the government funded program was a cost driver. So when you look at what was then, really the major difference was one, healthcare was local. You managed this either locally or regionally. Health plans had control, had a say on how they want to manage it. And unit cost was important, but quality was also equally important at that time. I wish we could go back to those days because things are very different now. What started some of the material changes that led from those early days of the PBM world and and the local or regional plans to where things are today. And can you sort of share some of your thoughts of of that evolution? So I would say the fundamentals of the PBM functions have not changed. I mean, when you think about then developing pharmacy network, male specialty distribution facilities, claim processing, which is which has always been a commodity, drug reimbursement strategy to pay reimbursement pharmacies, credentialing and audits, formalized development, all this, and rebate negotiation and administration, these fundamentals have stayed the same. That has not changed. 
what what has changed is how we use those. So the business didn't didn't innovate at all. The business just evolved into something a little different today. So with the fundamentals being the same, the processes and the approach has changed. To answer to your question, so what happened? So if you remember back in I think it's 2011 when the Hep C came into the market, that was a breakthrough. I mean, a cure for hepatitis C. Impressive innovation. Amazing work uh, by Gilead. Then comes a thousand dollars a pill associated to it. So the industry was shocked because, I mean, it just doubled the pharmacy cost. If all Hep C patients were to be treated that year, the pharmacy cost, annual pharmacy cost would have doubled. So, so that was how, how the projection was. So the Hep C, so innovation came and $1,000 per pill, $30,000 per month, three months therapy was introduced, cure. So the cost-benefit analysis for this was then people have looked at it and say, okay, maybe this is justified because long-term, this patient is a lifetime disease, all that stuff. Then the PBM industry said, huh, hold on. So this is interesting. So how do we deal with this? Now come, follow that innovation come the big molecules, one by one the MS drugs, the array, and all those innovations started to evolve. Now, so what we call specialty today became a thing. There was no name specialty. It was, it was called injectable drugs, high-cost drugs. Finally, somebody came up with well, specialty drugs. So <laughs> now this actually changed the marketplace. So the business turned into now unit costs, heavy unit cost driven than anything else. People have started to see a $30,000 drug, unit cost, there is a huge margin. So it became a unit cost driven space. Now in this process, health plans were becoming aware that there is this thing called rebate. There is this thing called spread that PBMs use as source of income. And they start to ask, hey, I need all of the rebates and any spread you, make, you are making, I need to know or I need to have that, or I need to spread my, my employer benefits accordingly. So I need all that to subsidize my program. It can't be yours. You, you just have to keep your admin fee and you have to give me all the money. So now it becomes health plans are demanding that they get all the discounts. PBMs are now getting squeezed and now started to be innovative. And so now this evolved into a volume business. So PBM said, okay, so now margin is narrowing because the buyers, the pairs actually are demanding this money to come to them. And so we have to probably consolidate. We have to buy more plants, generate more volume, and then let's just go get as much money, as much volume as we can, which is directly proportional to admin fees and, and associated revenues. So consolidation started, start to build up 11, 12, 13, 14, pharmacies, zero transaction almost every year. And then now fast forward today, we have a totally consolidated market and a three big, we call them the big three, controlling over 85% of the marketplace. And pretty much by default, the market has created a situation where three companies would then determine the price of, of a new pharmaceutical product coming to the market. So the dynamics totally changed. So the health plan, payers, insurers continue to push for more and more discounts. And then the PBMs have only one way to do it, go to pharma. 
pharmaceutical manufacturers. And then to get that attention, they have to consolidate with what was found to be more effective, have more market control, and sort of create a quote-unquote a little monopoly kind of model, and then force, force the discount that you, you think you can get. So the model didn't change. The PBM model tried to, stay, to sustain itself in whatever form it was back in 1990s. It didn't innovate at all. It just kept the same structure and wanted to make the best out of it. And then we got where we are today. And so we have a pretty consolidated market today. Most people think it's very inefficient in terms of operational efficiency, quality programs. But then most people also agree that it has helped to reduce cost for, it has helped pairs to get the cheapest cost possible by using the volume-based GPO negotiation. So we are in a little contradiction here at this point. So that's where we are today. Mm-hmm. That's a great overview of the evolution of things, Mesfin. As the primary care molecules, the big categories that you described at the beginning, all went generic, and the industry more and more focused on the specialty in oncology, rare diseases, and so on. Much smaller populations, so many fewer patients, and as you said, higher per unit costs. And then that just raised the stakes for everyone, and the rebates became so much more important then which then triggered all the consolidation and and aggressiveness in the management. Now, one of the lingering effects, though, is even after those rebates, the medicines are still expensive. And so in addition to the formulary exclusions and the rebate deals, you know, around that, we also have a lot of prior authorizations these days. Many folks think that the prior authorizations are more difficult now than they were in the early days. We have a lot more step edits, and we have much, much higher patient cost shares as well. And there are many folks that would point to those things as two things. One, creating a lot of friction and expense, navigating it. But then secondly, actually inhibiting patients sometimes from getting the the medicines they actually need. As a PBM executive, you know, how do you think about that? Do you think that's true or not? What's the PBM view on that? So prior authorizations have been important tools in terms of market share movement. So that's, that's why they are popular in the PBM space. But more importantly, all these benefit designs are built by plans. And then PBMs are technically, quote unquote, are implementing plan benefit designs. But with a consolidated market, PBMs have a right to dictate what that plan benefit design should look like because of the offerings that they they provide. So prior authorizations have been an issue from day one and several attempts have been made to improve quality and ease the negative ramification of prior authorizations on patients. I honestly go back to why are we even, why do we even need PAs in the first place? It's because we have certain formulary designations that prefer one product over the other product. And so we are trying to move market share to a preferred product. So we are forcing PAs to use people the other product. That's one. And the other one is we don't even want to cover that product. So when it comes to high cost, expensive medications, I think the industry has to rethink about how it is pricing its products. And you know, you know, Mark, I am still a total fan of 
value-based pricing for fair access concept, total fun. I mean, that concept absolutely would work if there is a willingness and if the industry have the courage to do it. It can work for sure. I have done a lot of research on this. I have looked into so many options. The model would work, but people have to want it to work. Patients will get over the prioritization hassle, will get over the whole patient disadvantage hassle. So the industry seems to be right now, especially in the consolidated market and the pharmaceutical manufacturers seem to be having a love-hate affair. If I were to deal with a couple of companies, then I don't have to worry about dealing with 600 health plans because three companies will just do what needs to be done is the attitude in terms of, you know, if pharma executives or business account leaders may think that one edit can do it for me, so why do I care? But then that comes at expense, at a high expense, because those three companies are going to want you to inflate prices. We know it has been a fact that we have a high inflation of actual unit cost at this point because of rebates. So unless we tackle that problem, unless we say what other way is there to get prescriptions easily to patients? How can we get it without much of a prioritization, without still with keeping innovation, still keeping with market dynamics, still keeping the free market to drive it. How can we do it? It can be done, but people have to want to do it. And I still think if prescriptions were properly designed and pairs were to agree not to hassle patients and farmers to agree to what agreed upon price should be to agree, that's one model that works. People have to start to think out of the box is my message here. Otherwise, I mean, the patient is going to be always on the losing end. The patient is on the losing end, unfortunately, on too many of these things. And so even today or recently, we've seen with even things like with biosimilars and the insulin products, they're being reduced in price and yet they're being dropped by $30, $35. And yet the response by the PBMs is to drop the drug from the formulary. And it's unfortunately not the lower costs don't waterfall down to benefit the patient at all, because the patient, as you said, the plan design is already established. So that plan design seems to be a fundamental source of the challenge here. So what can be done to reduce the cost sharing that's on the patients, both for, let's say, copays or the high deductibles? So this is a plan issue as much as the PBM issue. The PBM issue has obviously the high margin incentive because that's how the business model is designed. But the plan is also in it. I mean, the plan is that decides not to put the $35 product on formulary. And then the competition now is trying to neutralize the impact of that $35 by 95% reducing the brand, the brand medication. So as far as you are covered, as far as you don't even care whose house these medications are paid, if it's a transaction between these, these humongous companies, it doesn't concern you, it doesn't, it doesn't, it won't inconvenience you, no problem. The problem is not everybody's covered with these big companies, not everybody has access to, to, to those insurances, not everybody has. So that's a problem, number one. Number two is when a company is motivated to do the right thing, if we demotivate them by taking their products off formulary, not covering it, then it's something that is supposed to be challenged. I think so. I think to your question, what can be done? The market has to re- reinvent itself. And the market has to reinvent itself. Market has to say that there is a better model. 
and we are going to offer a better model and the traditional models are not outliving their, their, their usefulness and people have to continuously innovate. I mean, it's, it's, innovation is not high in the healthcare industry. It's really static. So that's what I would say. We have to challenge the system. We have to come up with, the entrepreneurs should come up with different models and then we have to, we have to fight the status quo to change itself. I mean, that, that is the only time if, if this big health insurers were to lose, to lose 20% of their members to a better designed model, better benefit model, you'll see how quickly they will change. So I think innovation is critical. I really, really have to get back. People have to put their thinking head and come back to really innovate the healthcare system. It's a humongous three trillion industry. I mean, the status quo has overlived its, its usefulness at this point. That is the solution in my mind. So, Mesman, I'm glad to hear you say that, as you might guess. As, as you know, as I promote value-based pricing and access, my sense is that we can achieve a reduction in the prior authorizations and the step edits and an improvement in the cost shares for patients. But as you pointed out, in exchange for pricing moderation, fair prices, side of the equation. But it does seem stuck. There are some folks who have been trying to work on that for some time, as you know, and have not yet made much progress. And one of the big sticking points seems to be the heavy role that the rebates themselves play. I'd just be interested in your perspective on that. It feels like, you know, to people on the outside, it feels like the rebate guarantee is what's driving a lot of the RFP choices, who wins the RFPs. Is that correct or is that an overgeneralization? Well, it's one of the most important factors, for sure. So rebate guarantees are the most important factor. I would say the leading factor, followed by other, you know, capabilities, you know, your approach, all that stuff. But the rebate guarantee is now a factor. Now I don't know. You probably know this. Fifty percent of the PBM margin now comes from rebate. Fifty percent. So the rebate guarantee is a so leading. It's a big deal. Factor. It's a big deal now. So when you look at those guarantees, though, this, this, is, this is the paradox. When you look at those guarantees, say, say for those local plans or local PBMs or plans, for that matter, who would like to be innovative, they cannot even come close to those guarantees, that the guarantees that are generated by the, the big three, not even close. It's just you'll be almost like 35, 40% below at best. So now this is for the same drug that the pharmaceutical companies have decided to give all kinds of discounts to the big three versus to the local and regional players. Because of that approach, the market is totally distorted and you know you have no chance no chance to compete. So now the rebate guarantee is is the name of the game today. Yeah. And this takes me back to your comments about the way the market evolved over time. But I think that's completely right. The smaller and mid-sized PBMs and plans that would like to compete differently are at a competitive disadvantage over the PBM. And that, in large part, is a function, actually, of the pharmaceutical industry's contracting strategy that was first developed and implemented you know, in the mid and late 90s related to size and control. The bigger the customer was, the higher rebate they could earn, and then the more control they exerted in terms of moving market share through formula exclusions and prior offs and all that sort of stuff, the higher the rebate could be. And now, you know, 25 or 30 years of implementing higher rebates for in exchange for size and control, that's what we have created. Large size and high control. And now we're all, everyone is sort of suffering the consequences of that. 
How about the benefits consultants? What's their perspective? Do they see sort of the dead end, I'll say, that it feels like we're in? And are they encouraging folks to try different things or not? The benefits consultants have, in, in my opinion, honestly, not only have now a responsibility, it's not a, just a business model because people are hiring them, have a responsibility also to reinvent their approach to this business. They are advising people, people are listening to them. They really have a responsibility. It's, it's not just like they take a contract, run a spreadsheet, and then award using the traditional highest rebate and highest network discount and you, you win. It should never be like that. Right now, at this point, still the focus is on that. I know some are trying to be a little more inclusive, more comprehensive in their approach, but I haven't seen really truly innovative benefit consultant that actually wants to change, uh, make, a, make a change or I mean, even challenge the status quo. I mean, they seem to be riding on the status quo instead of really being a consultant. I mean, it's, it's one thing to just do spreadsheet and, you know, get, get numbers out. It's another thing to say, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this, this approach that this company is bringing, it may be a lower rebate deal, but in principle, in, in its approach, in overall health score reduction, it's not a bad thing to consider. So they need to develop that ability to say that. They need to also have a pointer, a mark, that actually gives more point to companies that are that are, tra- that are trying to innovate, that actually show some sort of innovative initiatives in the bidding process, than the traditional, you know, just give me, I'll give you this and give me that kind of thing. So they have a role that can really help, but I haven't still seen them just leave their, their traditional nest that uh, have this whole spreadsheet approach and do little more than that. So, Mesfin, if I could, though, let me follow that up, though, because it seems like this is putting a squeeze on everything, right? Like the benefit consultants are using the status quo. And as you said, the status quo isn't necessarily working for everybody, right? And it's gone now to the extreme on some of these other areas. And I would say one of those extremes is the impact on the patient through programs like copay accumulators, right? Which are outlawed in 15 states. I mean, think about it. I mean, they've embraced programs that have to be outlawed by the government because they're so bad. So why did these sort of things emerge and so quickly become widespread? And what can be done about it? It really goes down to the same, how do we get money out of pharmaceutical companies? Rebate is one. What else? So that was the driving force. Now, when I first saw how copay maximization was implemented by certain companies, in the companies that actually pretty much started to do this called me. He said, hey, look at this new model. I said to him, I don't think this is even legal. You can't do this. Because, I mean, this is supposed to be patient copay maximization, not payer saving program. But finally, so I said, yeah, I just totally told the, the company, just forget this. This is two things. One, it's not ethical. It's not even re- really the right thing to do, number one. Number two, I don't think it's, it's illegal. Fast forward, it's not even a year after I, t- I have this conversation with this company that it became mainstream. And in one of the RFPs, a very respectable plan called me and said, hey, as part of this RFP process, I want you to build a copy maximization program for us. And I said to them, you guys are pairs, health plans. The copy maximization is supposed to be for your patients who cannot afford it. 
not for you. Are you guys, are you sure you want to do this? Have you guys verified this? Yeah, we have. We want to do it. So it became mainstream. Like it didn't take a year to, for this to become mainstream. So it boils down to, it really boils down to drug pricing. So drug pricing is causing people to come up with all kinds of loopholes, all kinds of feeling, create all kinds of cottage industry to just create something in the supply chain to generate some revenue. So this is one of them. So it shouldn't be legal to begin with, but if it's happening, again, it boils down to what we discussed earlier. Let's get to the basics. I mean, the basics of how, one, how drugs should be priced, two, how we can make this industry local. And how can this be a local regional industry instead of a monopoly that it is today? And three, how do we get innovators to jump in with more better approach to healthcare delivery is, I think, uh, the solution. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go from the accumulators and maximizers, you know, right to the let's declare certain drugs non-essential and non-covered and send the patients to the manufacture free good programs to the expansion of 340B and all those kinds of things. But they're all symptomatic. They're just symptoms of a system, as Mesfin points out, just really isn't kind of working well overall. And unfortunately, we don't have the leadership emerging to take that on right now, at least. It feels, you know, Mesfin, through all this, that things between the PBMs and manufacturers have gotten you know, somewhat adversarial in recent years. Has that been your experience or not? Is that a concern, do you think, or not? So it looks like this is how this this is going. So the market is pushing. The PBMs have created this guaranteed rebate concept. The consultants have, have adopted that guaranteed rebate concept. So health plans are saying, you know, every year I'm going to check out, is there a better guarantee I can get? Mm-hmm. to save more money. So they are pushing on their contract. They say, you know, I have a right to do a market check every year. So somebody gets hired and they do a market check. So if there is another, there are three big guys who are fighting it out among themselves. So depending upon who they are, so they are going to fight. They are going to push for more discounts. So this is a PBM health plan pharmaceutical ordinated conflict is what we see. So pharmaceutical companies are the targets and they have to get some, you know, everybody feels they have to get some more discounts from them. And the, the health plans feel entitled, they have to get that money. And PBMs are now saying, okay, I'm going to keep this client and I'm going to go to pharma and say, okay, now for this year, I need another X person to discount. And so that conflict has, there is that conflict going on. And so now, right now, one day they are friends the other day, they don't like each other, but that, that includes all three, three pictures. So the, the pairs are, the insurance companies are really major responsible, equally responsible for what's happening. The PBM wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do what they are doing if the insurance companies were behind it and pushing it, actually, making it happen. Well, the irony is, as, as you know, the demand for the higher rebates, the higher cost shares for the patients, the accumulators and maximizers and the 340B growth, all that stuff just gets priced in either to the next round of yearly price increases on the medicines or or now what, you know, 
as those have pulled back, it's getting priced into the new product launches. And it just feels like a game of squeeze the balloon where we're spending about the same amount of money overall, but in a much less efficient way and a much more hassle-filled way. Well, I was just going to go back to the point that Mesfin was making and, and that a lot of this is driven by the insurance companies. But again, you mentioned the big three. They're all now owned by insurance companies, right? And so help us understand that dynamic because... You know, we just saw a Humera biosimilar come to the market with two different prices. And you would think, based upon what the PBM's goal in life is to lower these drug costs, they would take the lower price, but they're all taking the higher price that has the rebate. It doesn't make sense. So is that driven because the health plan itself, as it grows, Obamacare guaranteed a percent of administrative revenue that comes to them? I mean, help us understand the dynamics there. So the rebate revenue that's coming from drug discount is not, mostly is not counted against net, it is a net net drug discount in terms of, it shows you actually you have paid a thousand bucks, although the drug is 3000 bucks because you got 2000, you know that, but that discount can apply anywhere. So it can apply for premium reduction, it can apply for administrative subsidies, it can apply for, so from pair point of view, they have found that to be sort of a better vehicle to utilize to maximize profit. So now, therefore, when a product comes, I mean, there is no reason for Humera to be in the space at this point. Humera, there are two, two out already, and there is, there is going to be. The biosimilar manufacturers, I have spent a bunch of hours with a few of them, who came in and said, okay, this is our strategy. This is our every single strategy is we are going to market up and market down. And that's the only way we have learned our lesson. The market is controlled. We are going to market up and we are going to dramatically market down so that the people who are in the middle don't get mad at us. So that is how it's set up today. Unless we somehow shake it up and find a way to get this, this model to be more innovative, more competitive. The total growth is going to be, the overall cost is going to be high. The net cost is going to be low. The insurance carriers and the PBMs are going to con- continue to make margin. And the overall healthcare cost expenditure is going to be covered by whosoever covers it. So by the way, the, the margin on the pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer, manufacturer side, it does matter because I mean, if I need an 80% discount, if I'm one of the decision makers in the big three, that you have to give it to me. Otherwise, you are out. A third of the market is controlled by me. So however you price it, now you have to price it at 110%, and then now you have to now cut it down by 70%, and then you have to try to make it work like that. So this is where we are now. There is a whole cottage industry created in between this situation. So we just have to be more innovative, more intelligent about the approach. And people have to seriously think about how to really have the free market work its magic to get a better healthcare system, a more efficient healthcare system. And otherwise, it's a challenge. Yeah. So tell us more about that part, Mesman, because we, we know, obviously, that you decided to separate from PerformRx, and now you've, you're leading your own company, Paradigm Rx. So tell us what you're working on there. So we are working, you know, you know, when we kicked it off about two years ago, we had a pharmaceutical company executives meeting, about 40 of them for about two months. We met with each one of them 
And our discussion was, hey guys, the way this trend is going is not going to help. And it's going to actually be a problem for all of us. So let's just bring back sanity to this thing. Let's just get back competitiveness and then let's do this in, on the regional and local basis. Let's get this business to be vibrant again. So that was how we started it. Then we went and developed a couple of technology products to actually make the system as transparent as, as, as efficient it can be. The product that we launched, just uh, we had a pilot going with some pharmaceutical companies now called Tungsten Plus blockchain power technology to actually make sense of the whole rebate end-to-end activities and make sure that all this double dipping, triple dipping is all eliminated. We hope, we, our belief is if that was to be the case, at least we'll contribute some part in minimizing this overall increase, like you said earlier, all these expenses are factored into new drug cost. So if we were to minimize these double, triple billings, then we can over minimize a long-term overall drug cost increases as new, new products come. So we came out with those products and then we, ha- we have also developed a couple of clinical models that will actually include quality. And so we are out there trying to get the market to listen to us and we are determined we are not going to slow down in any way we we are going to keep on pushing i think the market has to be pushed and innovation has to take place and has to work and so we are in this exciting journey i mean it's such a such a controlled market is amazing when you go into rfp competition you pretty much go and wonder wow this is incredible i mean how does this market change to be like like this but again we have to be in it you know, we have to be in it. We have to try convince people to, to buy the idea. And pairs are talking, you know, some pairs are talking about, we don't necessarily want the highest guaranteed rebate. Actually, we want a meaningful program. We have heard pairs say that. And interestingly, the highest guaranteed rebate and what we, what we provide as the best offer actually is better when you look at it at the end of the day, when you look at it incomprehensively, it's a much better approach than just a spreadsheet, just guaranteed high rebate in this, this astronomical number and all that stuff. So we are moving ahead. I mean, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted. <laughs> well, that's exciting, Bestfin. That's very exciting. And I think that that clearly answers, helps answer our next question as well. And our final question, because we sort of wrap up with all of our guests and ask them the same question. But if I could... I just want you to also just sort of get your perspective from the patient perspective as well. Like what can be done, whether it's in your new company or with his new initiatives or new ideas. But overall, what would be your prescription for better access? So I know our healthcare system is a little complicated, even for people who, who know it is complicated. But patients and employers can direct, can lead. And then I don't think the patients or employers should settle for what they don't want or what they don't like. And I think we have to they have to push, they have to demand better access to, to members, and they have to require that benefit designs should have a rational and reasonable way to make sure that their eligible members, their employees are not inconvenienced, are not, are not. It really boils down to who pays the bill. The company or the entity that pays the bill has the right to ask. And if they feel that Drug cost is something that bothers them. Maybe they should do they should do that differently. Maybe they should totally have a different approach to that. There are models out there. There are transparent 
startup companies, many of them trying to change the way pharmaceutical products are managed. Maybe that's their approach. I think people should get away from single issue. Just give me the maximum rebate and the maximum discount has gotten where we have today. And people have to say, okay, now this is this has outlived itself. So I would say it's up to the pairs. They have all the rights, all the rights to say, you know, 100,000 employee benefit company has a right to say, I really don't want any of this junk. I don't want privatization. I don't want this. I don't want that. You guys get this thing done right. And then they will get a response back. I guarantee you there will be a model that will accommodate that. Like in, in a year, companies will come up with a model that will say, so the margin, the healthcare, the, the healthcare, the healthcare cost margin or the insurance company's margin, if it's 10%, now it will drop to 5%. So what? So that may be the end game, but it really depends upon who pays the bill. The pay, the company that pays the bill has a right. They have to push. Consultants have a responsibility. Consultants have to be innovative. Consultants cannot gear the human resource executives to the same, the same old model. I think they have a social responsibility to behave, to think, to do out, to think out of the box. So, but at the end of the day, though, if we want to make a change. It's the payer has, has all the rights and they can make it happen. And the insurance companies are hired by payers. We call all our business that we call ourselves middle middlemen, right? You know, you, you, that's what we do. So the PBM insurance companies, there is a good function that, that gets done, but it shouldn't grow to the extent that it's a bottleneck for quality care. So I would say payer education, payer demand, I mean, they, sh- they should just go, hell no. This is what how we would like our, our care s- model system to go. Maybe that will push and then be open to new models too. And when people are coming and not every company is, is succeeding because nobody wants to try anything new. So I would say a free market economy flourishes when there is innovation. There can be innovation when people are open-minded and energetic enough to want to try new stuff, new models. And then we have several of that happening, popping up all over the place. Forget the status quo, forget the, the whole the system that, that we have. It's, it has worked. Okay, that's fine. But there is a better way. It can be much, much better if we go out of our box and, and make it work. So that's what I would say. Well, that's, that's well said. Well, Mark, it's been another great episode. Thanks. It has. It has. Mesfin, we learn every time we do this. So we do. Time to wrap up. How about if I kick us off a little bit with a few things that really stuck out to me? Okay, great. So first was just a great reminder for me how much and why I've so enjoyed working with and talking with Mesfin through the years. He's got a reputation, obviously, as not only being a great PBM executive, but you can tell he's a tough customer, tough negotiator. He's got a great reputation for those things too. But he calls things as he sees them. And he's fair and he's good to his word. And every time I interact with him, that stuff comes through. He shared, I thought, what was a great overview of just how the industry worked and how it's evolved over time. But I think more importantly, he really challenged all of us who work in it to do better, to do more. I like his recipe about more local accountability, the accountability of the person who's paying the bills, and more local and regional decision-making, more integrated decision-making. All of that requires better leadership and a willingness to innovate, and he challenges us all to do that. He's living that. He has started his own new company to try to deliver on many of those ideas and promises himself, and I and I find that inspiring, and I'm glad to be part of it. Well, no, I think those are all great. I, I think I would only, I think I would add the, I'm not a part of the PBM industry. I mean, 
obviously one of my companies, Faircom, back in the day was bought by Advanced PCS. So I had three years of working with a great group there. But they were, I guess those were early days, right? It was 2001 to 2004. But it was interesting to hear him talk about the fundamental sort of tools. Let's say the tools that PBMs use haven't changed. They've just been magnified, right? They've been like taken to the extremes. And so I think that was that was really interesting. Another thing was I loved his frankness about the industry and the need to reinvent itself. And finally, like you, I love the fact that he sort of challenged the employers. You're picking up the tab. You shouldn't be in a situation where your employees are left holding the bag for high copays, high deductibles. As somebody gets sick, they're the ones who are paying the most. And obviously, I think the employers have a role here. And he mentioned also the benefit consultants. It's time for them to to step up and stop living with the status quo and start getting where we need to be. Because we are seeing manufacturers lower the cost of drugs, and they're still picking the high cost option for the drug. So there has to be a better way. So all great. With that, Mesfin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your frankness and your thoughts and your prescription for better access. Thank you, Mesfin. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. This has been Episode 6, The PBM Perspective. And again, thank you to our guest. And thank you to my co-host, Scott Howell, who uh, once again has been fantastic. Now, for everybody, you can listen to these episodes on YouTube. So I'm going to promote that. And also going to promote that We've received some great emails to comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Ideas for future episodes, ideas for guests and others. So we're just really excited about the input we receive from our listeners. And so we welcome others to let us know. And with that, we'll wrap up episode six. So thank you. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.